Welcome, everyone, to Vox Die, Unfolding Scripture, where we journey through the Word of God from a Catholic perspective. I'm your host, Dr. Augustine Newman, a theologian with decades of study and reflection. I hold a PhD in theology from the Pontifical Gregorian University in Rome, an institution with a rich history dating back to 1551. Moreover, I have spent many years teaching scripture and theology at Catholic universities worldwide. In this podcast, we're going to explore the books of the Bible chapter by chapter. We'll shed light on the cultural, historical, and literary contexts of these sacred texts while diving deep into their rich theological undercurrents. Each episode will unpack these timeless truths and connect them with the teachings of the Catholic Church, offering you a profound understanding and a fresh perspective. We're not just going to read the Bible, we're going to live it, experiencing the transformative power of God's Word. From Genesis to Revelation, we'll see how these ancient texts speak to us today, guiding our paths and enriching our faith lives. So, whether you're a long-time student of Scripture or picking up the Bible for the first time, this journey is for you. Together, we'll delve into the mysteries, the challenges, and the beauty of the Scriptures. Join me as we embark on this journey, navigating the sea of God's Word under the banner of Catholic teaching. Let's begin our shared pilgrimage into the heart of divine revelation. Let's unfold the Scripture together. Well, friends, let's get cozy and settle in as we dive into the deep end of the Bible, starting right at the beginning with Genesis 1 and 2. These two chapters, I'd argue, are the bedrock of the entire Bible, sketching out the Judeo-Christian view of how everything came to be, how humans came to be, and most importantly, the divine bond between God and his creation. Now, it's important to clarify something, especially as a Catholic theologian. The Catholic Church isn't saying, take these chapters word for word, literally. The Catechism of the Catholic Church, right there in section number 289, tells us that the Church appreciates the writer's original intent, which wasn't really about giving a scientific rundown of creation, but rather painting a theological portrait. In Genesis 1, we find God as the supreme creator, methodically creating the world over six days, and then resting on the seventh. This rhythm, this pattern of work and rest, it's key and has profound resonance in our human lives and worship. The creation is portrayed as something well-ordered, deliberate, culminating in us, humans, made in God's own image and likeness according to Genesis 1.26. So, humanity, it's like the jewel in the crown of creation, given a unique dignity. Shifting gears to Genesis 2, we get a more human-focused narrative. God shapes the first man, Adam, from the dust of the ground, driving home our human nature, our reliance on God, and our bond with the earth. The formation of Eve from Adam's side highlights the unity and equality of all humans, and it also gives us a glimpse into the covenant of marriage. Central characters in these chapters are, of course, Adam and Eve, our first human ancestors. And important locales include the Garden of Eden, a symbol of initial peace, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, a metaphor for the moral decisions that we humans grapple with. If we were to pick a single verse to encapsulate these chapters, I'd go with Genesis 1.27, God created mankind in his image, in the image of God he created them, male and female he created them. This verse strikes at the heart of the immense dignity of every human being, 
made in God's image, and it reaffirms the inherent equality and complementarity between men and women. It really sets the scene for the sprawling narrative of God's relationship with humanity that unfolds in the rest of the Bible. One can so easily gloss over these chapters without realizing the profound theological insights nestled within them. So, let's dive into this, shall we? Consider, first, the sacramentality of creation. You know, in our Catholic tradition, we don't just view the physical world as a simple entity. No, we believe it carries a sacramental quality. It's like a divine signpost that points beyond itself to God. If you trace the rhythm of those initial six days of creation, there's this wonderful portrait of a God who is intricately involved in the creative process, who revolves in it, saying, it is good. This tells us something vital. Creation isn't merely functional. It's imbued with sacredness, with inherent goodness. And then, my friends, we stumble upon this fascinating concept of the eighth day. Now I know you're thinking, wait, I don't recall that being in Genesis. And you'd be right. It's not explicitly there. Instead, it's an idea that the early church fathers spoke about. They saw the eighth day of creation as emblematic of Christ's resurrection. The first seven days of creation, the old creation if you will, give way to the birth of a new creation in Christ. So in this light, Genesis becomes this vibrant canvas. It's not just a historical account, but an ongoing narrative of God's creative work, culminating in the resurrection. Now let's pivot a bit and talk about the two creation accounts nestled within Genesis 1 and 2. Here we've got two distinct narratives of creation, each bringing their unique flair. Genesis 1 brings to the fore an orderly cosmic account, while Genesis 2 spins a more intimate, human-centric tale. And while some may view these as contradictory, from our Catholic viewpoint, they're beautifully complementary. They highlight different aspects of the truth about God, humanity, and the world, painting a picture of a God who is both above all things, yet deeply involved in them. And then we come upon the Sabbath. The Sabbath, my friends, isn't merely a day to kick back and relax. In the Jewish tradition, carried forward into our Christian faith, it's a day of worship and deep appreciation of God's creation. It carries with it this eschatological dimension, a signpost pointing us toward our final destination, the eternal rest and happiness in God that we all yearn for. Lastly, let's chew on this, the translation of the ribs in the account of Eve's creation. The Hebrew word translated as rib could also mean side. This might suggest a more profound truth, not that woman is merely a piece of man, but rather, they are two equal halves of a whole. Peeling back these layers and exploring these nuances offer us fresh perspectives, deepening our understanding of these critical chapters in Genesis. They serve to remind us that these aren't just tales from a distant past, but are divine revelations about God, creation, and humanity that hold enduring theological significance. Well, my friends, let's now take a moment to talk about something that seems to stir a lot of questions and, sometimes, misunderstandings with the first two chapters of Genesis in our beloved Bible. First off, you might be scratching your head about the literal seven days concept. Now, does the Catholic Church assert that the Almighty crafted our world in seven precise 24-hour days? Well, not exactly. You see, our church doesn't demand an adherence to this concept of a literal seven-day creation. In fact, it's open to the notions of evolution and an aged universe. These seven days we read in Genesis, 
They can be viewed more as a literary tool, a way to distill God's magnificent work of creation into a narrative that's digestible and memorable. Another question that's often knocked around is how Genesis interacts with modern science, and evolution in particular. Some see a boxing ring with faith in one corner and science in the other, but that's not how the Catholic Church sees it. Rather than rivals, faith and science are more like dance partners, each enhancing the other's movements. The Church recognizes the theory of evolution as a sound scientific explanation for the biodiversity we see in life, but always under the proviso that God is the grand conductor, the source of all life. Then we have the curiosity of two creation stories in Genesis. It's easy to get tangled up in them as they seem to weave different narratives, but the church views these as complementary tales, each unraveling unique threads of truth about our God and his creation. Now the notion of original sin, that's a biggie and often a stumbling block. Rooted in the tale of Adam and Eve, it might seem puzzling, even unfair. Why should all of humanity shoulder the fallout of Adam and Eve's disobedience? While the Catholic perspective doesn't suggest we inherit guilt, per se. Instead, it's more of a state of separation from God, a disconnection which is mercifully restored through the sacrifice of Christ. Then there's the question of the historicity of Adam and Eve. Were they actual historical figures, or are they more symbolic? Well, the Church teaches us that while the story of Adam and Eve carries symbolic weight, it also conveys a deep historical truth. There was, indeed, an inaugural pair of human beings from whom we all descend, and through their actions, sin was introduced into the world. But as for the specifics, the how and when, well, those details remain a divine mystery. Always keep in mind, my friends, that the Church encourages us to approach these chapters with an understanding that the Bible, in its wisdom, communicates profound truths about God, humanity, and the world, using the language and literary forms of its time. The heart of it all isn't found in the minute specifics, but in the profound theological truths that echo through the ages. Next, we'll delve into an incredibly profound topic, the remarkable link between the opening chapters of Genesis and the story of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, as it unfolds throughout the Bible. Isn't it fascinating how the narrative starts to take shape right in Genesis 1 and 2? These passages establish a firm groundwork for the promise, the expectation, and ultimately, the realization of the Messiah in the New Testament. Let's start by considering the divine image. In Genesis, we learn that humans are created in the image of God. It's a striking concept that beautifully sets the scene for the Incarnation, a theological term referring to God becoming flesh. The New Testament presents Christ as this ultimate embodiment of God's image, a divine manifestation in a human form, where both aspects are perfectly and eternally united. This concept is beautifully encapsulated in Colossians 1.15, where Christ is referred to as the image of the invisible God. Now let's talk about Adam the first human in biblical tradition. Paul intriguingly refers to Jesus as the new Adam or the last Adam in his letter to the Corinthians. This comparison is loaded with significance. Just as the first Adam introduced sin and death to the world through his disobedience, so too does the new Adam, Christ, usher in life and grace, but he does so through obedience, even unto death on the cross. This potent parallel between Adam and Christ forms a pivotal part of Paul's teachings. Moving on, let's not forget the prophecy of the serpent's defeat in Genesis 3. 
After the fall of Adam and Eve, God foretells a hostility between the serpent, traditionally interpreted as Satan, and the woman, as well as their offspring. Interestingly, it's her offspring, interpreted as a reference to Jesus, who is predicted to crush the serpent's head, even as the serpent seeks to wound him. This prophecy, often called the Protovangelium, or the first gospel, anticipates the ultimate victory over evil through the Messiah. Finally, let's touch on the concept of the Sabbath rest. In Genesis, the seventh day, or the Sabbath, is a day of rest. This symbolic pause in creation hints at our future rest in Christ, our Messiah. The book of Hebrews links the rest that God offers his people to the eternal rest we receive through Jesus, who promises to provide rest for our weary souls, a concept echoed in the Gospel of Matthew. And so, my friends, it's these rich, layered elements presented to us right at the beginning of the Bible that lay the groundwork for the intricate tapestry of the Messianic narrative, a story that culminates in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Next, as someone who spent a lifetime in Catholic apologetics, I can tell you, we Catholics and our Protestant brothers and sisters, we have a lot of common ground. We both look at Genesis 1 and 2, and we see a shared story of God, our Creator, the creation of humans in His image, and of course, the reality of the fall. But as you know, when you get into the details, we do find some differences. And to my mind, these differences are rooted mainly in the unique interpretive traditions and points of emphasis within our Catholic faith and the many Protestant denominations. Let me give you some examples, shall we? Now, the way we interpret scripture is one such area. In the Catholic Church, we have this beautiful concept of the living tradition of the Church. And what that means is that we don't see scripture as something to be interpreted in isolation. No, we look at it through the lens of church teachings over centuries, our creeds, our liturgy, and the wisdom of church fathers and theologians. Now, many Protestant denominations, on the other hand, they have this principle of sola scriptura, where scripture alone is the ultimate authority in faith and practice. As a Catholic, I would suggest that our living tradition offers a kind of safeguard, a way to avoid individualistic or misguided interpretations, and to ensure the faith is passed down faithfully. Now let's talk about original sin. We Catholics and Protestant, we all believe in it, but how we understand it can differ. From a Catholic standpoint, we see original sin as a state of separation from God, as a loss of our original holiness and justice but it doesn't mean we humans are completely depraved. Now, there are some Protestant traditions, particularly within Reformed theology, that see it differently. They talk about total depravity, suggesting every aspect of human nature has been tainted by sin. As a Catholic, though, I like to remind folks of the enduring goodness of creation, including us humans, even after the fall. Genesis 1.31, remember, declares all of God's creation very good. And finally, there's the question of literalism versus symbolism. Some Protestant denominations lean toward a more literal interpretation of Genesis, like young earth creationism. But in the Catholic Church, we're less focused on literal historical facts and more on the theological meaning within these stories. We're open to symbolic interpretations and the insights of modern science, including evolution. As a Catholic, I believe this approach offers a more complex understanding that respects both the biblical text and the insights of human reason, including science.
Now, why do we Catholics believe our interpretation is right? Well, we trust in the guidance of the Holy Spirit throughout the history of the Church, as promised by Christ in John 16.13. But let me be clear, we have deep respect for our Protestant brothers and sisters. We recognize their interpretations as earnest attempts to understand and live the same biblical truth. So, even amidst our differences, we find common ground and shared commitment. Finally, my dear friends, isn't it fascinating how the ancient narratives from Genesis 1 and 2 still reverberate with wisdom today? Firstly, let's ponder on the idea of stewardship of creation. These narratives gently remind us that this earth, our home, and all its wonderful inhabitants were graciously bestowed upon us by God, entrusted into our care. Now, when we glance around at the growing concerns of climate change and witness the scars of environmental degradation, this calling towards stewardship becomes an urgent echo in our hearts. We should start perceiving our earth not as some warehouse of resources ripe for exploitation, but as a precious gift, a treasure that we're tasked to cherish and preserve for our future generations. Moving on, we find a powerful affirmation of human dignity. Genesis celebrates the idea that every single one of us, yes, you and I, are crafted in the image and likeness of God, validating the inherent dignity that exists within every human soul. In a world where inequality, discrimination, and violence often seem pervasive, this narrative nudges us to uphold respect for every individual, regardless of their race, gender, or social status. Let's not forget the harmonious rhythm of rest and work painted in these chapters. Our fast-paced, technology-laden society often blurs the boundaries of work and personal life. And these narratives act as a gentle reminder of maintaining a healthy balance, of the sanctity of rest, both physical and spiritual. Remember, my friends, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, as per Mark 2.27. Then we come across the resonating truth of community. The assertion in Genesis 2.18 that it is not good for the man to be alone emphasizes the innate need for relationships and community. We might experience moments of isolation fostered by the tendrils of modern technology and social media, but remember, we are woven to connect, to establish relationships, with each other and with God. Lastly, we see an affirmation of trust in God. The narratives illuminate the truth that everything originates from God and will, in the end, return to God. Amidst the unpredictability of life, these words provide a comforting reassurance, reminding us to anchor our trust in God and not to get swept away by worldly securities. These timeless lessons, extracted from Genesis 1 and 2, still hold a beacon of wisdom, guiding us as we navigate the intricacies of our modern lives. Quite the treasure, don't you think? Well, we've reached the end of our first episode of Vox Day, Unfolding Scripture. I am your host, Dr. Augustine Newman, and it has been a privilege to accompany you on this journey into the heart of God's Word. Remember, these narratives are not just ancient stories. They are living testimonies, whispering the truth about our existence, about our Creator, and about the love that He has for us. As we close each episode, I hope that we leave not just with knowledge, but also with wisdom that we can apply to our everyday lives. Make sure to join us again for our next episode, where we'll continue to unravel the mysteries of the Bible from a Catholic perspective. Don't forget to subscribe, share this podcast with a friend, and leave us a review to help others join us on this journey. 
May our exploration of scripture deepen your faith, enrich your spirit, and guide your actions until we meet again. Until then, may God bless you and keep you. May he let his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he look upon you kindly and give you peace. This is Dr. Augustine Newman, signing off for now. Remember, the word of God is a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path.